Good morning. We have bad news and some good news. Bad news is that the snow took a Sunday away from us last week, which means we didn't get to gather together. The good news is that I get to spend twice as long so that we can catch up. So, settle in, because the reality is, is that I don't have twice as long, but I'm going to try and make it twice as long. So let's see, let's see what, we can, what we can cram into our time together today um, in the Word of God. Uh, today we're in John 17. We're starting back up again in the series on the Gospel of John. And uh, it's the fourth time we've kind of revisited here. So this is John part four. Um, and we've kind of worked through each section of John. And now we're uh, looking towards Easter, towards the cross, towards uh, the work that Jesus did on Calvary. Um, and so for the next few weeks, that's kind of our focus is to look that way. So today we're in uh, John 17 to start with. But uh, before we do that, I'm just going to quickly pray, and then we will dive in to my hour and 20-minute sermon. Uh, Father, I could take an hour and 20 minutes to talk about uh, who you are and uh, what you've done in Jesus. But God, I pray that uh, you would be made great in our time here together as we look at your word as we study who you are, God, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to what you have to teach us today uh, through Jesus. So we just pray, God, that you would be here and among us in Jesus' name. Amen. Do, do you know God? Do you... Do you know God? Not, do you know of God? Do you know God? Do you know God like you know your spouse? Or maybe a better one would be, do you know God like your favorite sports team? Like your favorite Hobby? Spouses are hard to know, right? Yeah. But you see, we know our sports teams. We know which players should be playing, which players shouldn't be playing, which players are paid too much, which players are paid too little, which players should get in and out of the lineup, why they lose or why they don't lose. In fact, we know our team so well that we think we could either do the coach's job or the GM's job or both, because seriously, I know what I'm talking about. I know my team. I know its weaknesses. I know its strengths. I know what the purpose is. I know how to get there. We know our kids. We know their weaknesses. We know their strengths. We know what they're passionate about, at least while they're young, before they start keeping secrets from us. They do that, right? I don't know yet. My kids are too young to do that. Yes. But I know my kids. And I know my wife. 
I know what will make her angry. I know what will make her feel at peace. I know what she thinks about when she lays down or when there's a big decision coming up. I know what kinds of things will be difficult for her, what kinds of things she won't even think about. Do you know God? You see, we like to sometimes spend our time knowing of God. See, we employ some apologetic kinds of measures so that we can have confidence in our belief that there is a God and there is great value in knowing of God. So we think about cosmological arguments for God, which is the arguments about the origins of the universe. So we think about ontological arguments, which is arguments about being. Or we think epistemological arguments, I told you we would have to think this morning, about how we know things. And from that, we can know of God. So as an example, Calum's cosmological argument goes as follows. We know that whatever begins to exist has a cause. There's nothing in life, nothing in experience that would say that if, we, if something is created that it doesn't have a cause, whether that's a building or a child or a car, there is a cause behind what exists. Well, and we also know from scientific discovery that the universe began to exist. The second law of thermodynamics tells us that there had to be a finite beginning. The expanding universe tells us that there had to have been a beginning. So therefore, if the universe began, then the universe has a cause. Well, that's okay. But if the universe has a cause, then that means that there must be an uncaused personal creator of the universe that exists, who without the universe is beginningless, changeless, immaterial, timeless, spaceless, and enormously powerful. Therefore, we can assume that there is an uncaused personal creator of the universe who exists without the universe that is beginningless, changeless, immaterial, timeless, spaceless, and enormously powerful. It's settled. We know God. See, but I've had this argument with some of my coworkers, uh, not here at my previous job. Although I've always wondered about Tyson. <laughs> and one of my coworkers would say, well, of course, your argument makes sense. If the, if the earth or the universe had a beginning, then it had a cause. And if it had a cause, then it had to be something that's bigger and more powerful than the universe. That makes sense. But we still can't know this God, this cause. We are finite. We are confined to space. We are not limitless. We are not timeless. Therefore, we cannot know 
this God. And he would point to all of the religions of the world that seemed to try and find ways to talk about God. He said, but, but, if I was working at my computer and a messenger from God came and stood beside me and said, you need to believe in God, then I would believe. At that point, I would believe in God because a messenger of God came and stood in front of me in an unexplicable way and said, God, the creator of the universe existed. I was like, great, let's look at the gospel of John because that's exactly what John is arguing, that God sent him his son as a messenger to the people to show who God really is. That this enormously powerful, spaceless, timeless, beginningless being can be known. In John chapter 1, at the very beginning, this is what he says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. See, John, throughout his book, is arguing that God came and visited to make himself known to us. And he does this by showing Jesus perform miracles and teach about himself. He uses seven I am statements and he performs seven miracles. And John is amalgamating this information to make an argument that says God came to make himself known to you and to me. Jesus spends the last four chapters before our current chapter in chapter 17 to gather his disciples and teach them the very last things at Passover, which is a celebration of the Jewish people remembering God delivering them from Egypt and where they painted blood of the sheep over their door and the Spirit of God passed over them while he visited destruction on the Egyptians and freed them from slavery to become his people. So while the Jewish people are celebrating Passover, Jesus begins to teach his disciples about service, about washing each other's feet. He teaches them about his betrayal. He foretells them about Peter's denial. He tells them that I am the way, the truth, and the life, that nobody comes to the Father except through me. He promises to give the Holy Spirit to help the disciples. He says, I am the true vine. He says, the world hates me, and it will hate you. teaches them that the Holy Spirit will help them through this. And finally, he says, just before our chapter, he says, you will have tribulation, but I have overcome the world. 
And then he launches into a prayer with God. And that's where we find ourselves today. So let's read that beginning part of the prayer from verse 1 to 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Now, I could spend an hour and 20 minutes talking about those five verses. Because at a very base level, we have God the Son talking to God the Father. And we could spend 40 minutes talking about that reality. But today, I want to pull out three things that I think are very helpful for us. In this prayer, where Jesus is talking to God about their plans about their purposes, he says, or he kind of gives us three indications. One is he gives us an indication of the purpose of God. He gives us an indication of the means of God. And he gives us an indication of what the result of God's purposes are. So we have a purpose, we have a means, and we have a result. So verse 1, second part of it. As Jesus begins to pray, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Jesus' prayer to his Father is, glorify me so that I can glorify you. See, the purposes of Christ is to glorify God. Jesus' presence on earth in this circumstance is to glorify God. Glorify me, Father, so that I glorify you. So what is this glory that God is seeking? Well, I think John Piper actually has a really great definition of it. He says this, God's glory is the public display of his infinite beauty and worth. God's glory is the public display of his infinite beauty and worth. Now, where would we get that? Well, in, in partly in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, the prophet Isaiah is uh, commissioned by God to speak for God to the people of Israel, and God gives him a vision of himself. And when Isaiah looks up to the heavens to see God and his throne, he sees angels that are ablaze with the glory of God. And they have their faces covered because they cannot look at God. And one angel turns to the other angel and says in Isaiah 6, verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
that's a bit surprising because you would think that if you would say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is filled with his holiness. He is so holy that his, the whole earth is filled with his holiness. And yet the angel says that his, the earth is filled with his glory. So we can see here that the glory that fills the earth is a manifestation of his holiness, is the revealing of his infinite beauty, his infinite worth. Now we can spend our lives looking at the infinite worth of God. We can study the hundreds of thousands of species of insects on this planet to see his creativity. We can take a hike on Shiem, or we can look at the grand peaks of Everest to see his steadfastness. We can hear the crack of thunder overhead or listen to an erupting volcano to feel and understand his power. We can lift our eyes to the heavens and see the countless stars and the vastness of the universe to see his grandeur. We can see the life-giving light of, his, of the stars, of our sun, and see his light. See, the universe declares the glory of the Lord. And so... Jesus' purpose is the same, to reveal the holiness, the unmatched worth, the immeasurable beauty of God himself. See, I have three young kids. My daughter loves art. She's just, she just finished turning eight. She loves to draw. Now, when she first started, I would get a piece of paper that had like four scribbles on it. Daddy, this is for you. I love you. Oh. And as she got older, it would become a little bit more intricate. And soon I would have to start to decipher, what is this thing? Oh, that's you. Oh, I did not know I had a blockhead. Interesting. And she just continues to create art. And every time I come home from work or from being out somewhere, Daddy, here's a new drawing, and this one is for you. I'm giving it to you because I love you. And in each one of them, I can see my daughter. Last night, as I was sitting there, finishing preparing for this sermon, I was looking at this magnet wall that we have of pictures that my daughter has drawn for me and my wife, and I can see my daughter in them. I can see her creativity. I can see her love for me. I can see her development. I can see her motor skills increasing. I can see her joy. What is what makes her happy, what makes her scared, where she finds comfort because of her creations, I can understand my daughter. You see, in the same way, I can look around at the creation of God and see and know God. You see, the creation is filled 
with his glory. I can look at the vast oceans and see him. I can hear a storm coming and smell the fresh air and know of his rejuvenation. The problem, though, is that God intended us to know him intimately. And he created the world in a manner with which we could know him intimately. And yet, in Genesis chapter 3, we rejected God. We decided our own way was better. And we rebelled against him. And we created a separation from him. The most valuable. The most beautiful. Creator of the universe. Paul, in Romans chapter 3, or chapter 1, I apologize, puts it this way. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. You see, we have creation telling us of this immortal all-powerful, beautiful God, and we worship creation. We worship our physical abilities, the mountains, the seas, and what they can do for us. And because of that, there is a separation between us and God. When God delivered his people from Egypt, Moses brought them out And as they were in the desert, the glory of the Lord, his holiness, was set upon a mountain. And the people said, we cannot go near it lest we die. You see, there was a separation. And Moses went up to see God and he had an audacious ask in Exodus 33. He said, God, show me your face. I'm certain God giggled a little bit. You fool. You don't know what you're asking But God graciously said, I cannot show you my face. You will die. I am that holy and you are that broken that you cannot manage that. But what I will do is I will hide you in the cleft of a rock and I will put my hand over that spot and I will pass by with all of my glory and declare my name and you will see just the end bits of my robe so that you can know that I am God. And so he did that. And when Moses came down from the mountain, that teeny glimpse of God made his face glow to the point where the people of Israel had to put a sack over his head so that they wouldn't see it. The glory of God emanated from Moses just from seeing the tiniest little bit of him. 
For God declaring his name, that he is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger. And throughout the Old Testament, we have the people of Israel desiring for God to be with them. And so they build a tabernacle and then they build a temple and they have a ceremony to have God's glory come. And God's glory comes into the presence of the temple and nobody can go in there. When God was with them, when God, Emmanuel, was with his people, nobody could go into the Holy of Holies. Once a year, a high priest, if he was pure, could enter and give a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And just to be certain, because God is so glorious and so holy, and they were so fearful of God in all of his glory that they would tie a rope around his foot and leave it hanging outside so that if he was found wanting, they could yank him, his corpse out. God became separate. God was so holy that he became separate. And yet, and yet, God sent Jesus as the means to show his infinite worth and beauty. So the purpose is that God is glorified so that, uh, so that you are glorified. But the means is that Jesus is glorified. The cross of Christ. Again, verse 1, B. See, we're camping here for a long time. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. You see, revealing the worth and beauty of Jesus will result in the worth and beauty of God being more clearly displayed. Revealing the worth and beauty of Jesus will result in the worth and beauty of God being more clearly displayed. This is not really what you expect. What you expect is some grand transfiguration, some moment where some angelic feature stands beside you in its glory and light and says, look, there is God. That's what you expect of the glory of God. But God chose to send a man to show himself glorious. See, but this word glorify for Jesus is actually a very tricky word. Because when Jesus refers to glorifying himself, he's, he's talking about a very specific thing. In John chapter 12, just before he separates himself with his disciples, these Greeks come to him and ask him some questions, and he clarifies what his purpose is. And he says this, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
And later on in the discourse, he says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? See, Jesus unequivocally connects his glorification with his death on the cross. Nobody in his presence was confused about what Jesus said. He said, it is time for me to be glorified and I will be glorified by being lifted up on a cross. And their response is, how is that possible? The Son of God, the one who is supposed to come and be a Messiah for us is supposed to be forever. How is that possible? And yet, Jesus unequivocally connects his glorification, the glory of God, with his death on the cross. Jesus is consciously, purposefully, willfully marching towards the cross. John makes this so clear through his gospel from chapter 2 in the first miracle where his mom says, hey, 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 my son, he can do some special things. And Jesus says to her, my hour has not come. And throughout the book, he says, my hour has not come. My hour has not come. My hour is coming. The hour is coming. The hour is coming. The hour is here. The hour has come, Father. You see, Jesus is willfully, purposefully walking towards the cross. You see, the means by which God is most glorified is by placing Jesus on the cross. That is how he is most glorified. And this was not a last-minute decision. Isaiah the prophet, well before the Roman Empire was established, prophesied that the glory of the Lord would be revealed in Isaiah 43 to 5. He says, A voice crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, and the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together shall see it. And in our gospel, in the gospel of John, in the first pa passage, or in the first chapter, John the Baptist says, I am the voice in the desert. I have come to make the rough grounds level, and the rugged places a plain. Why? Because the glory of the Lord will be revealed. This was not a plan B. This was not an impulse by. God purposed this manifestation of his glory. But it wasn't even post Genesis chapter 3, it's not as if he got to Genesis chapter 3 and went, Oh, I didn't see that coming. Ooh, shoot. Mm, okay, and then a quick conference to figure out what we're going to do in 2,000 years or whatever the case was. No, no, no. 
God has laid out in Scripture that his plan was from all eternity. Now, we could turn to Revelate or Ephesians chapter 1, but I like to live on the edge, so I'm going to go to uh, Revelation chapter 13. Um, Revelation is full of imagery and uh, signs and wonders, and so we have beasts with horns, and we have, we have censers and scrolls and seals, and it, it's a very interesting book to read as, a, as an apocalyptic letter, but this particular portion is actually quite fairly clear. Revelation 13, 7 to 8, also it, it's a beast that is given authority, was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundations of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Okay, so let's unpack that a little bit. First, there's a book that is written that is called the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Who was the Lamb who was slain? See, Jesus was. See, at Passover, when the Jews are celebrating the Passover Lamb, the blood that they put on the doorpost so that the judgment of God would pass over them. Jesus was preparing to become that lamb, to die on the cross as a sacrifice so that God would pass over us. And so his name becomes the Lamb of God who was slain. And there is a book of life with his name on it, and in it are written the names of those who are saved. And this book was established before the foundations of the world. So before God said, let there be light, this plan was established. There was no plan B. There was no alternate. God determined to reveal his immeasurable beauty and his immeasurable worth through the cross of Jesus Christ. That was his means. God covenanted with his son before the world began that the pinnacle of his glory, the revealing of his worth and beauty was to pour out the father's wrath towards sinners on the son so that he could be both just in his holiness and justifier in his compassion towards us. So God's means of bringing glory to himself was to ransom a people and save them from themselves through the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ. The result then, verse 2 and 3, 
since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The result is that we can know this uncaused personal creator of the universe who existed before the universe was, who is changeless, immaterial, timeless, spaceless, and enormously powerful. See, God gave Jesus authority over all flesh to give eternal life to those whom you have given him. And eternal life is to know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ whom you have sent. See the result of God displaying his glory through Jesus. Is that you and I can know God. Not know of God. We can know his desires. And his wants. And his love. And his compassion. And his greatness. And his immeasurable beauty. We can comprehend this God who is eternal and vast and gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love. See, Jesus in verse 4 says, I have glorified you. I have displayed your worthy, your worth and your beauty by accomplishing the things you have given me to do. I have finished. When he was on the cross at the very end of his life, he yells out, it is finished. I have accomplished the purposes that I have set out to do, which is to glorify God by winning a people to myself, that they can know you, not of you. And Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 to 18, or chapter 3, 18. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The bag comes off. The separation is gone. I can approach God in confidence that he hears me, that he fills me, that he knows me and I can know him. I have unfettered access to God that I can know him because of his work on the cross of Christ. I loved this game that we played um, at youth. When I was at North Langley Community Church doing my youth internship, we did this game called Gorgon. And what we did is we would go to the church early and we would shut off all the breakers, like, I don't know, 9 o'clock in the morning. Really annoyed the administrative staff, particularly the elders, because our goal was to try and get the batteries and all of the exit lights to die before the students showed up so that it was as dark as possible. So every time we played this game, someone had to go and change all the lights. Now, we were ignorant at that point. You know, oh, it's just a fun game. Now I see the problem with it. Somebody has to change that. And we would put paper on the windows so that it was pitch black inside. And then we would take flashlights and we would color code them and we would take them apart into three or four pieces and we'd hide them around the church. And when the students came, they would stand outside and we would say, okay, your goal 
is to put together a flashlight. Now, here's the thing. There are youth leaders inside. And you've annoyed them for this entire year. They're going to get you back. They are going to scare you like you have never been scared before. And let me tell you, oh, we scared them. Oh, did we scare them. When you cannot see. See, we had the, we had the benefit of being in there for a long time, so our eyes kind of got used to the dark just a little bit. So we would hide around corners and then just reach out and place a hand on a shoulder. That's it. That's it. You can't see anything, and there's a hand. I have never heard so many screams in my life, and it brought so much joy to my heart. You could just, you could feel the fear. What's coming? What's coming? Who's around this corner? And by the time the game was getting close to the end, they would be creeping around corners, just, is anybody there? It was, and then by that point, we'd be lying down on the ground in the middle of the hall. Oh, it was, it was amazing. But when they got that flashlight put together, when they had light, when they could see us, everything changed. Everything changed. Now they did not live in fear of what was around the next corner. They weren't oppressed by the darkness because the light overcomes the darkness. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And we can know God and have confidence that he has overcome the world. We do not walk in a world of darkness, not knowing what's around the next corner, but we know that the God who planned before the foundations of the world to reveal himself as the most beautiful and most important thing in the universe has happened so that we can know him. This has two incredible implications. I mean, no, there's probably a thousand implications, but I'm going to talk about two of them. One, if you sit here today and you do not know God, I know that the Holy Spirit is working in your heart, and you know what I have said is true. You know, when you look at the creation of the world from the smallest atom to the largest star, you know of God. And I am telling you that you can know God. Through Jesus. So, stop worshiping the creation. Your own abilities. The mountains around us. Our finances, or health, or family, or kids. Turn, turn from your wrong thinking about these things. Repent of them and believe the good news of the gospel that God is 
for you, not against you, and that he has made a way for you to know him. Second, to those of you who know God, salvation is not about you. You are not the pinnacle of God's purposes. You are conduits to show the glory and greatness and surpassing beauty of God. By His grace, you have been saved to show that He is a gracious God who has infinite beauty. Your life should ring out with the mountains, should ring out with the angels. It says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That those people who look at you would see and feel and know God. You are a recipient of His grace so that you can show how glorious He is. Maybe we can say all power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing belong to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the slain Lamb of God who sits exalted with God and intercedes for you is to be praised. He is the center. He is where glory should go. J.I. Packer, I'll finish with this, has this quote. What makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance. And this the Christian has in a way that no other person has. For what higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal can there be than to know God? Do you know God? Let's pray. Father, you are so gracious towards us that you chose before the foundations of the world to reveal yourself and include us in your plan. God, even though we rebelled against you and we worship things that you've created instead of you, God, you have made a way for us to know you so, Father, I pray that that would sink into our lives. Father, that we would, we would know you, the slain Lamb of God, and that we would revel in the result of being included in your glory, Father. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.